We've been in a series about hope for all people. Hope is really our theme for 2023. And uh, as we're leading up to Easter, just in what's going on right now in the country, really feel like God's pouring himself out. I want to do a six-week series uh, called Hope for the Church. I still have hope for God's church. Now, when I say the word church, I don't know what comes to mind for you. It might trigger some things. It might uh, Church has become a, a, a bad word for many people uh, because, rightfully so, so many people have been hurt by church. So many people have experienced uh, you know, just their expectations have let, been let down by church. And you know what? I'm one of those people. I've been let down uh, by the church. I've been let down by church people. But I've also experienced wonderful things because of the church. Uh, wonderful things because of God's people. And uh, I still have hope for the church. And one of the reasons I still have hope for the church is because for all of its flaws, we've seen a lot of Uh, a lot of things go wrong. You know, even in the past three years, we've seen a lot of influential leaders fall. We've seen a lot of churches be exposed for things that have happened. And for all of its problems, I still believe in the church and I have hope for the church because I believe the Holy Spirit is present in the church and the Holy Spirit is a self-correcting agent. He is gonna make right what's wrong in his church. And Jesus, I believe, is passionate about the church. So we are going to do a six-week series where we actually go through the churches, the seven churches in the book of Revelation. If you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you know that it starts out with the apostle John on the island of Patmos. He's been exiled there, and he has a vision from heaven on the Lord's day. He sees a vision of Jesus, and Jesus tells him, write this down. I have something to say, John, and here's who I want to say it to. I want to say it to the churches. And John writes seven letters to the churches. And so we're just going to walk through these letters over the next six weeks and just see where Jesus says, hey, you're doing some good things, but here's where you need to make it right. Here's some things you're not doing so well, and we got to get this right. And so I believe that Jesus still believes in the church, even when we have things that are wrong. He comes to correct us, to get it right. And that's what we see in the book of Revelation. So we're going to start in Revelation chapter 2 with the first church. It is the church of Ephesus. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And you found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But... I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you have this. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I still have hope for the church. Why do I still have hope for the church? Because for all its failures, all of its hurts, all of its pains, despite inquisitions, crusades, and abuses, Jesus has not given up on this idea called the church. And as we look at the structure of each of the letters written to the seven churches over the next few weeks, you're going to notice that the structure of the messages uh, to the churches are kind of the same. They all kind of flow the same way. And in those messages, there's some hope in there for me. Uh, Dr. Chris Thomas points this out in his commentary on the book of Revelation. You know, for one thing, I have hope because it says that Jesus is standing. John's vision, it says that he sees Jesus standing in the midst of the lampstands. Okay, and the lampstands are the churches, he says. And this is, I mean, that's a trump card for me. Jesus, is his presence is in the midst of of his churches, in his people. He is in our midst. When we gather, he's with us. And, I, you know, I pray that we have the attitude like the psalmist that says, man, just to be in your house, to be in your midst, better is one day in your courts, Jesus, than a thousands elsewhere. Jesus is in the church. That gives me hope. Number two, Jesus is trying to get a message. He's trying to speak to his people. Jesus speaks to his church. That gives me hope. Just to stand and to hear the voice of the Lord. What an honor. What an opportunity. Jesus has seven prophetic messages for the church. And I still believe that Jesus is trying to speak to his church today. He wants to talk to us. That gives me hope. He who has an ear, let him hear. Every church that Jesus comes to, he says, I know your works. I know what's going on. Jesus has intimate knowledge of what's taking place in every single church. Sometimes he'll say, I know your works. Sometimes he'll say, I know your toil. I know your hardships. Jesus is not unaware with what the church has been going through and what's been happening to it. So this brings me peace, but it also terrifies me because Jesus is in the midst of the church, and he knows what we're doing. He's looking at how we're uh, acting and, and, and how we're going about the way of church. So it's awesome, but at the same time, that should give us a little bit of fear because it's like, man, are we doing what Jesus wants? I have hope because Jesus calls the church. Five out of the seven, he tells them to repent. This word, repent, it occurs actually 10 times in the book of Revelation. But six out of the 10 are for the church. So he is giving the church, he's like, I know there's some things wrong, guys, and I'm giving you a chance to make it right. Repent. Repentance is a good thing. It means Jesus is giving us an opportunity to get it right. He doesn't sugarcoat it. If you say, if you look at the church and say, well, there's this and there's this and there's this wrong with it. You know what? So does Jesus. <laughs> he looks at the churches and he says, this is wrong. This is wrong. Come on, guys. Let's make it right. There are some things that are wrong and it's time to repent. And lastly, I have hope because each of the seven churches, when Jesus speaks to them, he ends with a promise. If you repent, 
If you change, if you overcome, if you are victorious, there's a promise for you. God is a God of promises. And all of his promises are yes and amen. Meaning that he's good for it. That, that there is a promise ahead of us. There is a promise that awaits us. If we'll just fall in love with Jesus and hold on to what he's given us, there is a reward on the other side. There's something coming and that makes me hopeful. So we have seven letters to the churches. And I, I just think it's interesting. Each church gets a brief description of the one Jesus talking to them. So there's a, there's a, if you notice, there's a different description at each church. So this one, it was like Jesus is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and he walks amongst the seven lampstands. To the church at Pergamum, he says, I'm the one who has a two-edged sword. To the church at Thyatira, he says, I have eyes of fire and feet like burnished bronze. And so what's amazing, it seems if he just gives each church a little snippet of who he is. But if you want to get the full picture of who Jesus is, then you have to read all seven letters to each church. Each church, what does that mean? It means that each church, every church needs the message of the other church to have a complete vision of Jesus. You know what that tells me? That churches in the city of Chattanooga and churches, we don't need to be in competition with one another. In fact, what Jesus is speaking and saying to Silverdale is something I need to hear here at the crossing. What Jesus is speaking at City Church is something we need to hear at the crossing because it's all of us together that make up the body of Christ. It's impossible for one congregation to be everything to all people. We need each other. We're the body of Christ, and each has a revelation of Jesus that we need to get the full picture. And so here's Jesus going to each of these seven historic churches. This, these were real churches in Asia Minor, and he has a word for them. And, you know, it, it's funny because Jesus has a review for these churches. You know, it, it, it matters. Today, you know what doesn't matter? It doesn't matter what you think about church. It doesn't matter what you think about our church. Sometimes people go to church and they say, well, that worship just didn't do anything for me. Well, okay, good, because that worship wasn't for you. That worship was for Jesus. It, it's not about you. It's about him. It matters little what you think or your review about church. You know, it's funny. We have Facebook reviews now. We have Yelp reviews. You can give churches stars on Google review. But what the book of Revelation tells me is it matters very little about what you say about our church or about what stars you give our church on Google. Here's what matters. The one who holds the seven stars in his hands, he has a review of the church. And what he says, his report card of the church, is what matters and what trumps everything else. Whose review are we living for? Are we living for the applause of culture? Are we waiting for culture to think, oh, they're such a great organization. Oh, we just love the church. It matters little what culture or what you say about us. It doesn't matter. <laughs> the commendation we're after is what does Jesus have to say about his church? Because it's his. And he's walking in the midst of his churches. He is active. He's not passive. He's walking around. He's inspecting. You know, in the business world, I learned about this in business school. Hewlett Packard in the 70s, they did this thing called management by walking around. And they would go 
unplanned meetings. They would just, instead of being in uh, the managers, being in their office, instead of them being separated from the people and having designated meetings, they would actually just go out and walk around amongst the people. And they would get a much better feel about really how the company is going. Because you know if your boss is coming, you're going to clean up everything. You're going to make everything look real good. Planned meetings make people act different. But when the boss is just out walking around, when the boss is just looking and seeing what's going on, then they get a true picture of the work environment. And this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is walking around in the midst of his churches and he is inspecting. And so what is our job? Our job is to make sure that the church is being what the church is supposed to be because our king is among us. And so he's walking and he comes to the church at Ephesus and he starts by telling Ephesus how good they've been doing. There are some things where he's like, guys, you're crushing it. You're crushing it here, Ephesus. You have a strong sense of commitment, guys. Say, so you, you have a strong sense of discernment. You see, the church at Ephesus knew what was from God and what was not from God. They knew how to tell if someone was a false teacher or if they were a teacher of truth. You see, the church at Ephesus withstood pressures from within and without. They knew their values and they clung to them. And for this, Jesus commends them. They hated false teaching. They didn't tolerate false teachers. It said, and Jesus said, you bear the weight of my name. And it costs them. It says, you're enduring patiently. You're fighting the good fight. You're remaining faithful. And Jesus commends them because this is not easy. You know what? The church at Ephesus, they got, it, they got this right. They, they were holy. They believed right. They lived right. And they were busy about the work of the church. They had all that right. But then Jesus comes along and Jesus makes a strong statement. He says, but, but I have this against you. That's a strong statement. Woo, talk about a dagger in the heart. Imagine Jesus, I mean, just coming to the Crossing Church today and say, Crossing, you're doing so many things very well, but here's what I have against you. Mm, dagger in the heart. He says, you have left your first love. So think about this for a minute. Here's, here's kind of what's going on at the church of Ephesus. They are firm. They're solid in their faith. They're not going to walk away from the faith. They're not going to apostatize. They're not going to, you know, they're not going to denounce their faith, deconstruct their faith, and walk away. They're solid. They've been through some things. They've gone through some hard times. They're not going anywhere. They're steady. But even though they're steady, they've lost the passion and the hunger and the love that they had for Jesus at the very beginning. Jesus says you've left your first love. And when you say left, it makes it sound like maybe they had forgotten something or they absentmindedly just kind of left something behind. And I do think there is a sense of that in this text, like a, a gradual fading or drifting away. I don't know if you've ever been swimming in the ocean and you're out playing and you're out having fun and all of a sudden you look up and you realize the tide has just slowly pulled you away from where you're supposed to be. That can happen. This church at this point is 30 or 40 years old. 
And it may be, maybe they just slowly drifted from the passion and the hunger. Maybe they just got in the routine of doing church, the routine of going about the work of the ministry, but the passion behind the ministry has left them. I do think there is a sense of that there. But this word left is the Greek word ephemi, which can also be translated as abandoned. Now that's strong. You have abandoned your first love. Jesus says you've abandoned something. There was something that you were meant to take with you on this journey. I know, Ephesus, that you've been serving me for a while. I know that you've been patiently enduring. But there was something from the beginning that you were supposed to carry with you into the future. And you left it behind. You abandoned it. Again, this, is, this church is 30, 40 years old. Okay, they've been serving Jesus for a while. They were an influential church in their region. They're a leader in the region. What had they abandoned? Jesus said, you've abandoned the love, the hunger, the passion that you had at first. It reminds me of a, the story I heard of a, a couple who was driving an old truck. You know, the old trucks back in the day, they had bench seats where it was just one long seat across the front. They had bench seats and they were kind of, one was on the other side of the truck and the man was driving and the woman was on the other side and up pulled next to them was a young couple, also with a truck with a bench seat. And man, that young couple was just all over each other. There wasn't a, there wasn't a space between them. That woman was snuggled up next to that man as he was driving and they were just kissing on each other and loving each other. And the old woman gazed out the window and saw this young couple just loving on each other and being so close to one another. And she said, man, I remember when we used to be like that. I remember when we used to love like that. And the old man's just riding down the road. He gets to thinking about it. And he said, baby, I've never moved. I've been right here the whole time. What's he saying? I've been right here in this driver's seat. You're the one that's moved towards the window. How about you move on closer back here towards me? And that's what it can be like sometimes serving Jesus. He hadn't moved. He has not moved. He's right where we left him. He's right in the midst of his churches. But sometimes because of circumstances, because of life, because of pressure, we just lose that love that we had at the beginning. The love that Jesus is talking about here, he uses the word agape love, which is really, it's an amalgam of many meanings. It's a very multidimensional meaning. It's hard to describe in just one word. But essentially, it's a type of love where one would sacrifice themselves for a person that they so deeply cherished. This type of love occurs, Rick Renner says, when an individual sees, recognizes, understands, and appreciates the value of a person, causing them to behold this person in great esteem, awe, admiration, wonder, and sincere appreciation. Such great respect is awakened in the heart of the observer for the person that they are beholding, that they are compelled to love. In fact, their love for that person is irresistible. This kind of love knows no limits or boundaries and how far, wide, high, and deep it will go to show love to its recipient. So here's the question for us today, Crossing Church. When was the last time you had such a profound sense of awe, admiration, wonder, and sincere appreciation for Jesus. 
When was the last time you stood in awe of Jesus? When was the last time you thought about the cross of Christ? When was the last time you thought about how he saved you, how he changed your life, how beautiful he is, how he's the ruler of the universe? When was the last time Jesus took your breath away? That's a question we have to answer. You see, it's so easy for us to just go through the routines year after year, Sunday after Sunday, and eventually what happens is we replace our passion and our love and our intimacy with Jesus for simply serving Jesus, for simply doing the right things. Now, I don't think we should stop doing the right things. Jesus commends them for doing the right things. They were doing the duties they were supposed to do, but they had no longer were they delighting in Christ. He wants you to delight in him, not just do the duties of a faithful Christian. Because sometimes, here's what happens, the fruit of intimacy can sometimes rob us of the source of intimacy. This happens in marriage, right? Okay, intimacy produces fruit. A young married couple, they love each other, they're passionate. Eventually, this passionate love, this intimacy leads to having children. Children are the fruit of intimacy. What a wonderful blessing children are. What a blessing the fruit is. But children require a lot of attention. A lot. And if the couple's not careful, all the attention and energy and passion that they used to have for one another, all of that turns and now it goes towards the children. The children become the recipients of their attention and love and passion. And they can become like strangers in their own home because their relationship became centered around the children. The fruit of the intimacy they had at first has robbed them of the source of the intimacy. And this is, seems to be what's happening at the church of Ephesus. The church had grown. It was successful. They were living right. They were, they were going, they're not going to walk away from their faith. They're grinding it out. But here is something you can't forget. Ministry, doing things for Jesus can never replace simply being with Jesus. And actually our first ministry is ministry unto the Lord. Jesus, when he comes, to, to, to the apostle John. John writes in Revelation 1.5, he writes about Jesus. He says, all glory to him who loves us. Jesus was the first one to love. He loved us. He laid his life down for us. He loves us. He's freed us from our sins by the shedding of his blood. He has made us a kingdom of priests to God, his father. All glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Do you see Jesus has made it. We just forget Jesus has made us priests. We forget that in the Old Testament, you couldn't just be a priest. You had to be born into the priesthood. It was a special calling. You had to be born into it, a special right. And the priests, they were in charge of the temple, of the tabernacle. The priests were in charge of the sacrifices. The priests were in charge of maintaining the, the temple and, and their job 
was to minister unto the Lord. Every morning a sacrifice unto God. Every night a sacrifice unto God. Their job was to tend to the presence of God and to minister to God. And Jesus is telling the Ephesians, you've forgotten that you're priests. You've forgotten that your number one priority is me. You've forgotten that the love for me is what fuels all the other things. You want more fruit? Don't focus on the fruit. Focus on the source that brings the fruit. you got to get back to your first love, church. And he tells him, Jesus tells us to do three things real quickly. He says, remember, repent, and do the first works. Remember, repent, redo. If you've lost your first love today, it's the same. Here's what you need to do. If you don't have that passion and awe and wonder like you used to have, here's what you need to do. You need to remember, you need to repent, and you need to redo the first words. The first, Jesus says, remember. The very fact that Jesus has to tell them that they need to remember means they've forgotten some things. How easy is it for us to forget what God did yesterday because of our business of today? How easy is it for us to forget yesterday's victory because of today's battle? How easy is it for us to forget the passion we once had because of the demands and the pressures of today? You see, God is telling the church at Ephesus, go back to the beginning and remember all that I did through you. And if you want to know all that God did through the Ephesians church, you can go back to Acts 19. Acts 18 and 19 shows you what had happened at first. It's amazing. God came down in a powerful way. You see, the church at Ephesus, it starts with 12 people. Paul founded it. He laid his hands on 12 people. The Spirit of God comes on them. They speak in tongues. They prophesy. But over the next few years, the Bible tells us in Acts 19 that those 12 people would multiply and a great revival would happen. And it says that the whole of Asia heard the word of the Lord. They went from 12 people to all of the region hearing about God. You see how important this church at Ephesus was? It was a leading church. It's what opened the door to the rest of the region. It was a regional church. God did, it says that God did extraordinary miracles at the hands of Paul at Ephesus. Okay, if you just have a, one miracle is enough, okay? If we had a headache healed today, we'd run and shout and think, my God. But not only were just miracles happening, the Bible says extraordinary miracles. Like there's levels of miracles and they're happening at Ephesus. So much so that they're taking handkerchiefs that's been placed on Paul and laying it on the handkerchiefs on sick people and they're being healed. I mean, amazing. In Ephesus, there are those who practice witchcraft and magic. John is talking to people that used to be into witchcraft and magic, but they believed in Jesus. And all together one day, they took all their books and their magic paraphernalia and they brought it out and they did a big bonfire and they burned it all. Thousands of dollars worth of books and witchcraft and they burned it because they loved Jesus so much. You know, in the city of Ephesus, that was one of the great seven wonders of the world was the temple to the god, goddess Artemis. And, and, and so many people in Ephesus started getting saved. So many people started following Jesus that it was cutting into the profits of the idol worship industry. People quit going to Artemis. They quit buying her statues. Artemis was threatened by Jesus, and because of it, a riot breaks out. 
And Jesus is telling Ephesus, go back and remember the days when I called you. Go back and remember the the witchcraft and the stuff I brought you out of. Go back and remember the passion. You were so passionate for me that you took those books and you threw them in the fire and you said, I want nothing to do with this life anymore. I'm following Jesus now. You've got to remember. When was the last time you went back and you just remembered and recounted the faithfulness of God in your life? Can you point back to a moment and say, that's where Jesus found me? Hey, listen, maybe you're a young person and your parents have been coming to church your whole life and you've been coming to church your whole life, but you don't have a moment that you can look back to and remember where Jesus found you. This is your wake-up call today. It's not just about your parents having an encounter with Jesus. You need an encounter with Jesus. You need something in your life that you can look back and remember. Yeah, when I was 16. Yeah, when I was 17. God found me and he changed me. Remember, remember what God did in your life. The next thing is he says, repent. Repent. The Greek word repent, metanoia, it's a compound of two words. Meta means to turn. Nous means mind. So it's one's mind, intellect, will, frame of thinking, opinion, general view, of life. Rick Renner says that when you put these two words together, you get uh, a word that means a decision to completely change the way one thinks, one lives, and one behaves. So in other words, repentance is not some short-lived emotional moment where you feel sorry and then you move right on with life. No, repentance is when you make a conscious, intellectual decision to take a new direction, to completely change your life by discarding and walking away from the old life and embracing a new one. When Jesus confronts the church at Ephesus, it's not to shame them or to destroy them or to condemn them. Jesus confronts them because he wants to cleanse them and restore them and transform them. You know, in the church calendar, we are in the season of Lent. Lent is 40 days before Easter. It's traditionally a time to prepare ourselves for the resurrection of Christ. But if you follow Christ in the Gospels, where is Christ going to lead you? He's going to lead you to a cross. Following Jesus will lead you to a cross. And when you get to the cross, you're not supposed to just look up at the cross and be cleansed and washed by the blood of Jesus and be saved. But you're actually supposed to climb up on that cross with him and to crucify your own flesh as he crucified his. You see, repentance is when you realize there's something broken inside of me. I've done some things. I've lost my way. I've gone my own way. And repentance is when we become broken over our own brokenness. When we become broken over our own sin. The sin of the Ephesian church is a heart that's grown cold, hard, cynical, tough. And Jesus is saying, you need to be broken. You need to repent over the heart that's become hardened towards me. You see, when you're broken before God, whoo, that is irresistible to the presence of God. Psalm 51, 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, 
who inhabits eternal eternity, whose name is holy. He says, I dwell in a high and holy place, but also with those who have a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Do we want revival? Revival comes when we're broken. Revival comes when we get before the Lord and we say, God, I have put other things before you. They're not even necessarily bad things. They're just things that I have organized my life around these things instead of organizing my life around you and what you've done and how you saved me. God, I've not been hungry for you. I've not stood in awe of you. I have not believed that you are better than life itself. I've been chasing success. I've been chasing my family. I've been chasing so many things, but I'm coming back to just being pure and simple and broken before you. And God says, that's the person he's going to revive. That's the one who will experience revival. So we remember, we repent, and then he says, go back to those first works. Redo the first works. If you look back and you read again through Acts 18 and 19, you look at what were the first works? What were they doing that Jesus is talking about? Rick Renner makes a list of those works in his book on Revelation. I think they're good. Here's some of the things that the church was doing. The church possessed a spiritual hunger. They were hungry. The church enjoyed rich fellowship with one another. They loved one another. The church was eager to repent and receive from God. They cherished the word of God. They sacrificed their religious reputations for Jesus. The church was quick to confess their sin and turn away from evil works. The church was receptive to God's power and the gifts of the Spirit. The church loved and honored the name of Jesus. The church was known for their great faith and their great love for one another. And Jesus tells them, go back and do those things. You know, I was just thinking about, as I was preparing this message, I was thinking about the things in my own life. I was remembering when God saved me when I was 16 years old. And he set my heart on fire. And I went back and I just started remembering the things I used to pray can I tell you, man, I prayed some big prayers when I was 16, 17, 18 years old. I want to encourage you, if you're a young person, I want to encourage you to dream big and pray big. I'm not telling you to be dumb or to not have wisdom. I'm telling you to believe big, man. Believe that God can change your school. Believe that God can change your family. Believe that God can change your life. And you know what I realized? The older I've gotten, the more cynical I've gotten in my heart. The longer you're in church, the longer you've been around churchy things, you lose that sense of childlike wonder and awe at what God could do. I used to believe for big things. I remember when I was in high school, I remember our, our youth pastor would often take us to Finley Stadium in downtown Chattanooga, a group of high schoolers. There might be a, a, a hundred or less of us, and we would go to Finley Stadium, and we would believe that we were going to fill Finley Stadium for Jesus. We believed it. Man, we're going to fill this stadium up for Jesus. We're going we're to see God do great things in our city. And you know what? Over the years and over time, I've laughed at myself for ever believing that. I've thought, how foolish to think we could fill Finley Stadium up. And I quit believing in those things. Can I tell you where I'm at right now? I feel like God is renewing a sense of childlike wonder in my heart. 
back in the beginning of the year, we had churches come together and pray. We had 19 different churches. A few hundred people showed up for three Wednesdays in January. But in those three nights in January, I believe God started dealing with that cynicism in my heart and telling me to go back and to remember and to go back and redo the works that God has put in my heart. I put in a text message with all those pastors that we were together. I said, you know what? I think we're going to have a prayer meeting one day in Finley Stadium. We got 1,200 churches in Chattanooga. My goodness, we could fill up Finley Stadium probably two or three times over with the believers in this city. Why not? Why not believe something big could happen in our city? Why not believe God could move? Why not have the passion that we had when we were young in the faith and believe God that he can do it because he's God and he's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all we could ask or think. He's calling us back to our first love. He's calling us back to childlike wonder. He's calling us back to hunger and thirst for him like we did when we first got saved. The pressures, the disappointments, the things have buried that childlike wonder. And God is saying, get the shovel out and start digging and let's get back to that. That's what I want from you, Ephesus. That's what I want for you, Crossing Church. And he said, listen, if you don't, if you don't remember, if you don't repent, if you don't redo the works at first, he said, I'm going to come and I'm going to remove your lampstand. A lampstand produces light. It shines for all to see. Church, we were created to shine. When you lose your passion in your hunger, when you're just doing church, but you're no longer passionate about loving Jesus and others, then it's the beginning of, an, it's the, beginning of the end for the church. That church will eventually lose its lampstand. It will die. It will lose its influence. Why? Because those who are passionate, those who are hungry, will be the ones who are going to lead. The leader will be the most hungry. The leader will be the most passionate. Have you ever been around somebody that's just passionate about something? They're hungry for something. They just get passionate about something, and then all of a sudden you've been around them, and you're like, man, I'm passionate about this too. This happened even just this week. My brother and sister, uh, sister-in-law, they live in South Georgia, and they have a bunch of hens that lay eggs. They have hens, and they love these hens. They sent me like 15 pictures of hens that lay eggs, talking about their hens, how they go out every day, and it's just so therapeutic to go out there and check for the eggs, and they love it, and they could never live without their hens. I have never thought about owning a hen until the other day. I thought, you know what? I need to get me a hen. I need to get, start looking at chicken coops on Amazon. You just you get around people that are passionate about something. And all of a sudden, what they're passionate about begins to fuel your passion. And hunger and passion are contagious. And I'm telling you, those who are hungry and passionate in this hour, it's going to be contagious. And they will be the ones who are going to lead the movement of God in this hour. That's why you need a C group. Because you need to get around people that are hungry for the things of God. If you don't have any hunger for God right now, if you're not passionate, get around somebody who's just going after God and they're hungry for God and see if that passion and that hunger doesn't come on you. I'm telling you, it's contagious. It's contagious. Hungry. Those who are hungry. Jesus said, if you will do this, you will taste of the tree of life. He said, you, the promise, the hope is if you overcome, you regain this passion, 
I'm going to let you eat from the tree of life that's in the garden of God. I believe we can taste even now the eternal Zoe life of Christ. We can experience it. We can taste it now. We can have hope for the future. I believe we're at the beginning of a great move of God in our day. And I believe we're even beginning to taste now what God wants to do in the earth with these outpourings that have happened on these college campuses. God is moving, and it's clear that it's a movement of hunger. God comes where he's wanted. He comes where he's desired. It's hunger like I've not seen in a long time for a move of God. It reminds me of something I learned about recently on a trip to New York uh, City, something that happened there in the middle of the 19th century called the Businessman's Revival. This is crazy. I can't believe I hadn't heard of this. But it's just amazing what happened at the businessman's revival. A retired businessman by the name of Jeremiah Lanfear. He was brought on to help a church that was dying and struggling, as many churches were in the middle of the 19th century. He was so frustrated. He tried everything. He tried to tell people about Jesus. He tried to evangelize. He tried to get people to come to the church. Nothing worked. He was so frustrated that everything was failing. And he kind of had a, a, an idea or a moment. And it was clearly from the Lord. This is what he did. He wrote on a placard and he put it on the door of the church. And this is what it said. Prayer meeting, 12 to one o'clock. Stop, five, 10 or 20 minutes or the whole hour as your time admits. On Wednesday, September 23rd, 1857, Lanfear sat by himself in a church for 30 minutes, thinking, well, great. <laughs> but at the 30-minute mark, one man showed up. And then by the end, by 1 o'clock, four more had shown up. Six people showed up to pray, but God moved. Next week, 20 people showed up. Next week, 40 people showed up. And I am not making this up. You can go read it. The numbers grew and grew. And between six months to a year, it was said that from 12 p.m. to 1 p.m. in downtown New York City, every church, every theater was filled for an hour of prayer. Soon it began to spread to other parts of the country. In Boston, it was said that during the noon hour, the streets were silent and all you could hear was the sound of prayers and singing coming from the churches. As many as 10,000 men every day filled the, the churches in the theaters of New York City for an hour on their lunch break. And it was called the Businessmen's Revival. The New York Times reported about it. They, they even recognize that something so special was happening. They have reports of ships coming into New York Harbor. And before the ship could even make it to the harbor, the sailors would fall under conviction on the ship, fall down weeping under the conviction of their sin and repenting because God's presence had literally invaded New York. Because of one prayer meeting that started with one man, then with six people, then 20, then 40, then 10,000, one man was hungry for God to move in his day in his city. And it's estimated that over one million people in America came to know Christ 
because of the businessmen's revival. It spread to England. It spread to Ireland. The Welsh revival that takes place really has its beginning with Jeremiah Lanfear in downtown New York, one man holding a prayer meeting one day a week for one hour. It, was, it wasn't about a great preacher. It wasn't about great singers. It was about hunger and prayer for God. And that's where we are today again, my friends. We're in an hour of hunger. We're in an hour where those who are passionate, those who fight off cynicism, those who live in awe and wonder of what God can do in their day, and they call out to God for it to happen. Those are the ones, I believe, who are going to lead and see revival. This week, we decided just to open up our doors from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. We're calling it the prayer room. Every Wednesday in the youth building, 11 to 1. Now, I can't promise you what's going to happen every week, but all I, can, all I can tell you is this week, and I'm not trying to hype anything up. This isn't about hype. God's presence came and just sat in that room with us for two hours. I mean, from the very get-go, it was like a blanket was sitting in that room of God's presence. God was there. Not because of me, because people come and they're hungry. They're hungry for God to move. And I say to you what Jeremiah said, come five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour, two hours, come, do what you can do. We are seeking God. We are hungry for a move in our day. We are coming back to our first love. Maybe you can't get here because of our location. I understand that. You can pray in your car. You can pray at your desk. Just take some time and be with the Lord. Let's be hungry. Let's rekindle the passion and the fire that we had at the beginning. I have hope for the church because Jesus still has hope for the church. Father, I thank you for your word today. I pray you would help us to be a people of first love, to walk with you, to cry out to you in this hour that we live in. We don't want you to pass us by, but what you're pouring out in other places, do it here. We're hungry for a move of God in our day. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in today. Hey, you can join us 9 or 11 in the room. I'm telling you, our services, our gatherings have been crazy powerful. It's just God's moving right now. He's genuinely moving. I wouldn't stay home. I would get in a church and go and be with God's people. We'll see you soon.